Hello, welcome to Context Matters. This is Cindy Parker. There are two associated topics that fascinate me, and they fight for attention when I plan this podcast. The first is what I focus on professionally, which is exploring the context of the Bible the influence geography has on the lives of people, and the development of Israelite culture. The more work I have put into understanding the lived experience of people as they try to figure out how to interact with God, well, the more they become less theoretical or theological and more relatable. It becomes easier to relate to their humanity and to their daily struggles to make godly decisions based on their context. The second topic that fascinates me is related to the first one. The more I know about the influence of geography, culture, and history on the ancient context, the more I recognize the hidden influence of my modern context and how it influences how I understand the Bible and why it is so different than how other people understand the Bible. Both of these topics come together in this week's episode with Dr. Lawson Stone. He is an Old Testament professor at Asbury Seminary, and I've known Lawson for years. In fact, we met in Israel when he brought a group of students along with his youngest son for a three-week course at Jerusalem University College, where I used to work. You'll hear that story towards the end of this episode. Lawson and I met up during a very busy conference when our free times were hard to coordinate. At this conference, every hotel lobby, nearby restaurant, and cafe was buzzing with people networking and catching up with colleagues they hadn't seen all year. So Lawson and I headed out to a beautiful little park, which was refreshing for us. But it does mean that you will hear sounds of nature and the city in the background. No, I'm professor of Old Testament at Asbury Seminary. I'm the only person that hasn't got a fancy name, you know. Well, I take it back. John Cook is also professor of Old Testament. But um, that's it. Just professor of Old Testament. I'm the chairman of the department, which means I am the main forwarder of emails. <laughs> it's not like that. I'm, you don't get intoxicated on the power of being a department chair. Um, you just kind of, you make out the course schedule, which the dean sends you with all the times and days already filled in. So basically, I just transfer it to a graph and send it back. <laughs> okay, but you did. But it sounds impressive. I can say I'm the chair of the Department of Old Testament. I net a free book out of it every once in a while. You did, however, create that really cool archaeology lab. Yes. yes. Okay, so a title doesn't come with the archaeology lab? No, um, not yet. Um, we should, uh, you know, at some point I would really enjoy having the bur- the shifting of the burden of my teaching over mainly to doing that kind of stuff. And if that involved creating a position, you know, but usually that happens when you get an endowment, you know, an endowed chair, and then you name it, you know, the Harvey P. Klutz chair of material culture <laughs> or something like that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we really want the klutzes yeah, yeah, in charge yeah. of 3,000-year-old right, right, artifacts. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. You know, Harvey P. Break stuff, you know. So. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not legendary as a really skilled field excavator. Um, I, I'm kind of clumsy, and I've fallen into the square and stuff. It's terrible. But, um, but still, you know, everybody likes me because I bring great students, you know, so. First, before we get into, like, biblical context, can you tell us your personal context? Growing up, what was oh, that? Like, exactly. family and was your family religious? Like, what was your initial introduction to the Bible? Ah, well, I grew up in a very um, classic civil Amer- American civil religion kind of home, uh, nominally Methodist. My parents divorced when I was 10. Our family was actually physically and emotionally very violent. I saw my mother pull a knife on my dad at one point, and he wrestled her to the floor to get the knife away. I've seen him pull a gun on someone at the door. Um, My brother was a huge guy and uh, beat me senseless on a daily basis. Uh, So not a lot of religion, you know, in that context. And then uh, when I was um, 15 or 16, I was on a retreat, and I'd been invited on this retreat because I played guitar. And this was back in the early days of, we didn't have contemporary worship, but this was back when Pass It On and He's Everything to Me and We Are One in the Spirit constituted the entire repertoire of uh, contemporary Christian music. And so uh, I, I went on this retreat to play guitar because I was a decent kid and they thought I was a Christian. And while I was there, um, I discovered uh, what the Christian life was in terms of personal relationship with Jesus Christ based on his work at the cross. And, and uh, I you know, bought it right there. And I didn't know what to do with it. Um, at that point, I had no real nurture. So I figured, okay, I probably should read the Bible. And the King James wasn't getting me very far. So I went to a bookshop, found the religious books, and I saw this paperback called Good News for Modern Man. And it looked interesting to me, and I opened it up, and it seemed fairly clear to organize the way the Bible was organized, the New Testament. I didn't understand about translations. And it had these weird, funky line drawings. And so I bought it and went home and started reading it. And I felt guilty because I thought, I should really be reading the Bible, but I'm reading this thing. And it was, of course, today's English version of the Bible. Ah, yeah. It was called Good News for Modern Man back yeah. in those days. And it was actually quite controversial. And so I, uh, I, I probably read that thing about 10 times in a month, just wore the cover off it. And I kept looking for the footnotes. The verse numbers were raised superscript numbers. I thought there were footnotes. That's right. how, that's how right. totally unbiblicized <laughs> I was. But in doing that, I really internalized a lot of the New Testament. And then somebody at some point, a Campus Crusade person, I think, sat me down and kind of explained what was going on here and explained that also the real translation to use was the New American Standard. So, okay, started reading that. And it was kind of like the King James, but from a different era. And I often say the NASB is the most literal translation out there, but unfortunately it's not yet available in English. (laughs) Um, But I still love it, you know. I, I, I love it. If I can't check the Hebrew, I can check the NASB. So let's see. Um, So I got interested in reading the Bible and got involved in a Bible study. And then um, it was at school. Actually, before school, the teacher was leading it. And then when she left, I inherited the Bible study. And as a new believer, I'm teaching this Bible study and reading, thinking, what do you do? And so I started just outlining the passages that we were studying 
And I would just put my outline up in the Bible study and say, this is what it looks like this is about. And there was another guy who always read Barclay. And Barclay was like, was like the N.T. Wright for that generation, except a little more kind of liberal or mainstream Protestant. And so I would give my outline and he would uh, tell us what Barclay thought. And then we would argue about that. And so, and then we'd pray. And so that was our Bible study. What did you do with the discrepancies between like what you saw at home and maybe promises or things that you saw about who God was and things that were said in the Bible? Well, nothing that happened to me at home, any of the bad stuff was ever linked to religion. Uh, That is, it wasn't some kind of sick religion that led to me being a part of a violent family. Uh, In fact, it seemed to me that it, that, if God really cut loose in the middle of my family, that could really have had a good result. Um, but um, through all this, my father, a very imperfect man, one of the greatest generation, you know, guys, uh, multiple Purple Hearts from World War II and all that, mm. loaded with his flaws, but fundamentally a guy who took care of the people who were entrusted to him. And I saw in my father a steadfastness and a care for me and a willingness to do whatever it took to get me through life in one piece. And when my mother left us, a lot of the toxicity in the family kind of left with her. Um, and, uh, and my brother, when he left the home, left our home, it was just my dad and me for five or six years. And we had a great time. He never got it as far as my faith, you know, but, but we got along and, and we would go to Gatlinburg and play golf and, you know, have a great time. So, but he really embodied for me steadfastness, um, a a sort of faithful care. He made sure he took care of people who were in his charge. And I think I've inherited that. If if somebody is in, in some way, if I think of someone as being within my circle of care, I feel an obligation to them that I'm going to do what I can to help them get through life and thrive. And I think that's really what Hesed is. As Lawson was talking about the steadfast nature of his dad, I kept thinking of the Hebrew word Hesed. And then he made the same connection. Hesed is used all over the place in the Hebrew Bible, but unfortunately, it does not have a very good English translation that can fully capture the depth of its meaning. And that makes me a little sad because our English translations end up falling flat and we miss some of the dramatic statements made about the biblical characters who demonstrate chesed. And it also makes us fail to understand a certain aspect of God who always shows chesed towards his people. So I interrupted Lawson's story to see if he could give us a good definition of the word chesed. Yeah, well, chesed is a Hebrew word. This this translated in the English translations variously. Loving kindness was the old translation. Steadfast love is the pretty much contemporary. There's not a good English equivalent, but uh, the Hebrew lexicons tell us it is the obligation of a host to a guest, of a patron to a client, of an elder to a younger And so it's classically the obligation that a person who is empowered feels towards someone who is in their care. Rarely does a subordinate show hesed, um, except to the extent that they have to show people who are beneath them. I don't mean beneath them in like a moral way, but just who are under their care. 
they have to in short short show Hessen. So my father had that. I mean, he he was he was a guy who took care of those who were in his care, and I tend to think of my life in terms of concentric circles of my family, a circle of friends who are almost family that I feel a real uh, a real commitment to. Um, and I think I got that from him. And it, sometimes it could be unwelcome. Maybe somebody doesn't want to be in that circle of mine. And so I have to be aware that <laughs> not everybody finds that a great thing, you know. So, so I have to respect that, of course. But, uh, but still, that was the thing I definitely got from my father. And, and that's, I think it's great. You know, our classical notion of God as sovereign is wrong in one sense. A totally sovereign God would not be capable of feeling obligation. But for God to show Hesed, it shows that he has chosen somehow to actually feel obligated to those under his care. And that, that's just to me an astonishing thing about the biblical view of God is that while technically he hasn't got to, the reality is he has embraced obligation to us. And he does things for us because he feels like he has to. I just think that's astonishing. Yeah. How did you end up becoming an Old Testament professor? Ah, well, I, I stumbled into Asbury College, um, now Asbury University, as a Jesus freak from the 70s. I uh, started taking classes, and I had this old Quaker professor named Lowell Roberts, taught Old Testament. I just loved that man. And he took me under his wing, and since he taught Old Testament and I took his classes, I came to love. I didn't know anything about the Old Testament either. So that was a revelation to discover, you know, all those those stories and and people who seemed a lot more like me right. than some of the disciples yep. do, you know. Yep. And so uh, all through college then I was ready. To, and also at that time at Asbury College, Dennis Kinlaw was the president and his chapel messages were just astounding to me. And he was a Hebraist, you know, he was a Brandeis ancient Near Eastern studies uh, grad. And so uh, he had me all inspired. Then when I went to Kenya as a missionary and before going on to seminary, I planning to be a pastor at that time. And when I was in Kenya, I realized that Genesis was a lot more relevant to Kenyans than Romans. Ah, so you have to explain. Why do you yeah. think that's true? Well, I taught, I was Bible teacher at a youth camp and I was going to do Romans five, six, seven, and eight. And I was just going to take them to justification by faith, sanctification, life in the spirit, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and I was going to explain about positional righteousness and all that stuff. And those are, those are all important things. But I just looked out there and these, these guys were just like, just glassy eyed. Like, what is this? And probably I might've been doing a poor job teaching it. I don't know, but but I know what those guys were really thinking about because they were my students also. I was a teacher in, in secondary school. They were really thinking, who am I going to marry? How many, how many sheep and goats am I going to have? How many cows am I going to have? What's, what's my family going to be like? And it occurred to me that Genesis embraces and conveys the faith in that context. So I stopped. When I went in the second day, I said, you all have been really bored with my Bible lessons. And they were kind of stunned, you know, that I would say that. And I said, I'm a new missionary. I don't know anything, you know. So I started on something that was obviously not right. I said, what I really want to do is talk to you about how to find out who you're supposed to marry. And boom, you know, everybody was awake. And so I started in on Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. And 
you know, talking about the creation and the culmination then of the creation of humanity as male and female in the garden and all that, and laid out a vision of male-female relationships in the context of creation and faithfulness. And boy, that was really, uh, I mean, I got so many invitations to speak after that to places. I, I, I had no idea that it was going to be that powerful. So I spent the rest of that year, basically, when I was out in ministry, teaching on the Old Testament. And when I came back to seminary, I realized, boy, I want to study more of this. And somewhere early on, I realized that I, I wanted to do this as my vocation. Is So I'm, I'm curious about the context of Kenya. Um, and even in the example you used about them wanting to marry and how many sheep and how many goats they would have, that's a very different kind of a context than people in the United States yeah. or in Canada might have when they're thinking about getting married. Um, but it's very close to the actual ancient context. Sure. So uh, what did you learn by being in the Kenyan context about the biblical context? Yeah, well, I guess what I, I to me, the, the stories in the Old Testament, in these agricultural, polytheistic polygamous, tradition-bound um, communities, agro-pastoralist, you know, types. All that is in the Old Testament, but I just never saw it. It wasn't real to me. And I just thought, yeah, they're like country people or something. But then when I lived there, and I would, every weekend, I would go home with a student, and we would go to places I could never find again if my life depended on it. And I would hang out with in their village with their friends and they would kill a goat and we would have a big cookout and, and, uh, and it would be, and I would preach in their church or something. And, and I really just saw, you know, this It's kind of like if you, the way that at JUC, we, they camp with the Bedouins, you know, sometimes, except this wasn't a, an orchestrated experience. This was just like going home with students and who knows, you know, what I'm going to confront. I remember once going and sitting down in a, the house you know, a very small mud house, and looking out the window, and I saw a goat chained to a stake, and and the guy said, uh, uh, "That's that." Uh, they used to call me Arab Goita, which in their language meant "son of a stone," so that was my name. <laughs> and he said, "That is Arab Goita's goat," and I remember thinking, "Good heavens, they're going to give me a goat. What in the world am I going to do with a goat? Where am I going to put it? I don't know how to raise a goat." Oh, no. And so, so I'm sitting there, and as we're talking. Uh, about an hour later, they bring they bring in dinner and they sit it all down and they said, "Well, here is here is Arab Goita's goat," and I looked at the food and I looked out the window, and it was just the steak with the rope hanging down. Oh, no. You remember in Jurassic Park <laughs> yeah. where the the T Rex eats the goat yeah. off the steak? Yeah. It was that scene. I mean, that was the scene, and I remember thinking, "Whoa, I'm now eating something that an hour ago I saw was alive." Yeah. <laughs> that was just like for me. So when it says Abraham, these visitors show up at his camp, and he says, give me just a minute. And he goes out and he kills an animal and cooks it and stuff. I've been there. Yeah, so then you're actually experiencing yeah. what that hospitality is right, like. Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 you're looking at that. And yeah. so so, and so, and when I would go back to those stories, it started off just as just this informal, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that once. And then I realized, hey, there's a whole world there that I don't know much about. And so... Uh, I didn't get to rejoin that set of issues until about 2006, when as a already established professor, I started going to Israel. I'd been to Israel once, but it was lost on me. 
uh, for some reason that just didn't register. I'd love to know even what going back into that biblical context in 2006 in particular, how did that change who you were as a professor? So by then you were already teaching and teaching a lot of Old Testament. Okay, well I, I graduated from a program that focused on traditional exegetical stuff, language. Um, I did a lot of ancient Near Eastern literature, redaction criticism, form criticism, history of interpretation. I and did, all of those criticisms are ways to look at the Bible, yeah, analyze, the writing and the editing yeah, of the Bible. Compiled. But it was really, I was a textualist, really. I knew about the ancient Near Eastern context and stuff, but I, I didn't. Material culture hadn't. For some reason, I, I'd gotten really away from that impression that was so strong in Kenya. So then I came to Asbury Seminary and started teaching. And uh, we had a lot of faculty turnover. I had to teach a lot of different classes. Um, uh, it seemed like I was teaching a new class every year for about 15 years. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was awful. Well, I mean, but it was good in a sense. I've taught the entire canon. Right. Yeah. I've also taught patristic interpretation of the Old <laughs> Testament. You know, like, who gets to do that? So... But it was all, you know, a world of texts. And then in uh, 2000, and well, uh, we started sending, st- we had had an Israel program way back in the 60s. It was very irregular. A professor named Herb Livingston uh, was, um, who had an involvement in the founding of JUC, uh, and he took students. But it was very irregular. It wasn't really a curriculum. And when he retired, I took his place, and I didn't do any of that. I didn't know how. It scared me to think about taking students overseas. So I just decided not to do that. Uh, And then in 2000, we hired Sandra Richter. She started this up again. But as soon as she was going to take somebody to JUC, she um, joyfully uh, announced that she was expecting a child uh, at the time that they were going to be in Israel. And so Slowly in the meeting where this was happening, it occurred to me that I was the only one who was free during January to go to Israel, and I did not want to do this. You know, I just like, no, 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 but it was going to be me. And then she came up with the idea that I should take my uh, youngest son with me, and uh, so that ended up happening, and I was really, I had misgivings, uh, not the least of which is just the responsibility of taking students, you know, someplace on a long trip like that I didn't know what the experience was going to be like um, and I was also fearful that I was going to be shown up for as an ignoramus uh, because there'd be all these people who would know you know like oh I know where Shechem is you know well I don't you know and so as soon as we walked through the gate at Jerusalem University College something inside of me just said this is great you're going to love this this is this is home and when I locked eyes with Paul Wright the president, and he shook my hand. I knew I had a friend. And as I remember, as we, were, we briefly met, got the students figured out, and Lyman, my son, and I are going up the stairs, way up to the tower on the very top. As we're going up, my son, who's 16, looks around at me. She says, Dad, that Dr. Wright? I said, yeah. He says, he's a good man. And that was a, just an interesting comment. So we just had a blast that week, and I totally... Uh, connected with everything that we were doing, I had become very discouraged in my writing, the writing aspect of my academic career, and had not actually written a word in about 10 years on anything that was to be published. 
And while I was there, I started writing again on a couple of really important projects and was contacted about writing some articles for a Bible atlas and actually wrote them while I was there. And every night, my son and I would write our blogs and I would write on my public. So when I came home, it was like I'd totally relaunched. I felt like a graduate student again. I'd relaunched my career in, in my own mind. And so I see 2006 as a real watershed. And then the following, immediately, the next, that summer, I went to tell Dan to excavate there and then came back the next January to JUC. And so there was a, a spot a couple of years there where I was in Israel a lot um, and have continued to go virtually every year um, since. Spent a semester there in 2012 on sabbatical. What does being in the place where biblical, the biblical history is all about life kind of in that place? So as a modern scholar, what do you think is so influential and so moving about being on the land there and what do you do with what you physically are seeing on the land and then when you go to read the bible sometimes these things match sometimes they don't match so what do you do with that well part of it is sometimes we just absorb experiences as they come and we don't try to sort them out so you know you go to israel i always tell students brace yourself to be disappointed you know there's millions and millions 12 15 million people living in israel and they're building on top of all this. We wish that they would not live there, that they would live somewhere else and preserve all the holy places unspoiled. But no, they live there and they expect that they have a right to do that, which they do, of course. And it's not just the modern people. People oh, yeah. have been Every, for yeah, hundreds yeah, of years. Right. And so it's, it's they've all own. just had a modern civilization it's a there. It's stratum, you know. Yeah, we, yeah. It's a, so, but one of the things that doesn't change, though, is physical movement around the land. So... I was writing on the story of Ehud and Eglon, which takes place down in the Dead Sea in the book of Judges. And uh, Ehud comes from the area of Benjamin, and he comes down to Jericho and uh, murders the king and then goes back up to Benjamin, rounds up his army and comes back down and does this quickly enough to where the Moabites down there are still in disarray. And the first time I made that trip, you know, we walk from from St. George's Monastery down to New Testament Jericho. And it dawned on me, you know, it's about 12, 13 miles. And and you'd go down from about 3,000 feet above sea level to about 1,000 below. And Ehud came down that trip, went back up that trip really quick, gathered an army, came back down. He did that three times. (laughs) And I thought, man, this guy was buff. He's like a marathon runner, you know. Because this is a total the ancient version of the Iron Man. This right? is a total of about thirty-five miles yeah. and lots of altitude stuff, yeah. and and uh, and so that story just kind of lit up for me in a way that it hadn't before, and so now I just can't read a story in the Bible without thinking about the physical logistics of people moving around and how long it might take, um, and uh, and also you know some of the you, you have to kind of peel off the modern layer of consumerism and high-tech a little bit. But just below the surface, you know, you can still in Israel catch a feeling for a lot of the same uh, realities that are present in the Old Testament. But I guess for me it started with the sheer brute physicality of being bound by the shape of the land and having to move across the land in certain ways in some places, you can't do some things. 
because the soil won't grow that crop, the water won't stay. Um, and so the, you know, the hydrology, the water uh, situation is really tricky and important to understand. Um, so that's just something that now for me is, is, is permanent. Okay, so at this point, Lawson and I realized our time was running out, but I still had questions I wanted to ask. We decided to walk and talk and record the podcast all at the same time. So if we sound like we're out of breath, it's only because we are walking quickly, trying to make it to our next sessions on time. I asked Lawson to talk about his experiences with archaeology and how it has influenced his personal life. Yeah, excavating is, to me... You know, I, I, I can capture it in an experience that I had a good deal later at, at Avelbeit Maka, which is where we're digging now. And I was really digging through this awful destruction layer. I mean, burnt brick, ashes, just crud, and nothing fun. Nothing at all fun. But I kept telling myself, destruction layers, when you get to the floor, it's Christmas. There's all this wonderful stuff down there. It'll be so awesome. Well, there's also door number two, which is the people knew that it was coming and they took all their stuff and left. And that's what happened. I got to the floor and it was clean as a whistle. Just one set of fragments from a cooking pot. And so I sat there really aggravated, piecing together this cooking pot rim. And Nava Ponitz Cohen, the, the uh, director, says, what you got there? And I looked up and said, just a busted cooking pot. And then Nava said, yeah, maybe it was her last meal. Oh, and wow. uh, just turned it from yeah. material object into yeah. a real personal story so, yeah, then, I right? Anson Rainey, I think, is the one who said that archaeology is a science of digging a square hole and the art of telling a story about it. Oh. And that really struck me. You know, what if, who knows what that cooking pot represents? Maybe, uh, maybe she just bailed out, got out of Dodge. Maybe she was taken captive. Maybe she was killed. But uh, that was that sort of captures a lot of what it is, what it's about for me. So, uh, as an Old Testament scholar and a writer, and you're publishing, and being in the land was somewhat rejuvenating. Then, when you start dealing with material culture um, and Archaeology is famous for not always coming into complete agreement with the biblical text. How did that change your scholarship oh, yeah. and writing? Well, I, I never subscribed to the the uh, you know the, the the cliche here where every shovel of dirt that we turn over confirms the Bible, um, because you know what we find in archaeology is really random, and uh, certain things about the Bible that we know and don't know. That's kind of random, too. So you shouldn't predict, you couldn't predict a perfect agreement. In fact, if there was perfect agreement, you would be suspicious right. that it was being staged. Right, but, right. So I don't worry about it too much. The job is we've got to do the archaeology well. We've got to read the text well. And we've got to explore the connections and sometimes disconnections. And we've just you know, got to be honest about that. Nothing is ever gained by fibbing or stretching and maybe our faith will lead us to consider some hypotheses that other unbelievers might not consider probable 
But even when we do that, we have to make a cogent argument. We have to understand why other folks might not share it. But, um, but we have to be honest with both of those discourses. And that's the thing that really is important to me is handling each set of data with integrity yeah. and, and skill. And that's hard to do. Um, we all have our biases and our hopes for what we think will turn out. And right. we just have to somehow not um, let those drive us and force us to do things that are, that are contrary to our ethos. And on that note, we made it to our next destination exactly at the right time. Thank you, Lawson, for taking time to talk with me and for being so honest about your life experiences. Lawson and I only had time to talk about archaeology in the land of the Bible for a small portion of the interview. So stay tuned for next week's episode when I talk to the archaeologist, Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott. I'm always interested in the story behind the artifact. You know, who made this? Why did they make it? Who used it? What did they use it for? Why was it left behind? What, mm-hmm. what happened with that? So for me, it's, it's the artifact. I love the artifact, but I also love the story behind the artifact mm-hmm. and uncovering through biblical studies, ethnoarchaeology, uh, iconography, all, you know, archaeology, all, all these different resources we have to try to understand mm-hmm. their narrative better. Yeah. We will go more in depth about what we can learn about Israelite life and their religion based on the ancient objects found in the dirt. And if any of you are interested in studying biblical context or in participating in an archaeological dig during the summer, visit my website at www.narrativeofplace.com for more information. Several of the archaeological sites are accepting applications right now for this summer. And if you want my suggestions about where to go, just send me an email and I'm happy to let you know where the prime dig spots are in the coming year. Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters who make episodes like this financially possible to produce. And thank you to Peter Lordson at Sycamore Sound for the amazing music at the beginning and the end of this podcast. Thank you all for being here. See you next week.